whenever we as humans are faced with this cognitive dissonance, we can either accept it, reject it, or kind of try to mold it with our existing information to kind of create this new perception. Tokenization or asking that one person to be the voice of an entire population is part of the systemic problem because the power people in the room are still not taking responsibility for learning more. We live in a society that does not work for everyone. We have multiple systems that do not work for everyone. In order to be most effective with storytelling, you have to start with those most impacted by the system. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. The deaths of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Deion Johnson in Phoenix last week have once again exposed deep, deep wounds. Stories of how dangerous it is to be a person of color continues to not fully be heard. Frankly, there is no podcast episode we can release this week that can begin to address the enormity of this moment and what has taken place in this country for hundreds of years. What you are about to listen to was initially recorded and slated for release months ago. It's about stories, specifically the power and the practice of storytelling based on work that key community advocates engaged in starting in 2017. Given the very real need for us to cultivate understanding and empathy, this work and this episode have universal application, but also may deserve a place in your ears at this time. Listening, truly listening to another person's life experience is one possible step that can help us be better than we have been. Storytelling is a fundamental tool for how we connect to and learn from each other. And we are fortunate to have two guests for this episode with expertise to share at the intersection of inclusion and story. Stephanie Luz Cordell and Liz Warren are going to join us in just a minute, but before they do, we'll reiterate that this episode was recorded in mid-January, before COVID, and before the events of last week. Their great work over the past few years resulted in two publications that will be discussed during the podcast. You can find links to both of them in the show notes. We've been waiting for some time to release this episode. Sharing it seems to make sense right now because we need deeper understanding. And to better understand, we need to listen intently to stories. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about key skills for these times, crafting stories, building empathy, and methods for all voices to be heard. My name is Stephanie Luce Cordell. I'm a collaborative consultant here locally in the Phoenix metro area. The work that I do is under the umbrella of All Voices Consulting, which really focuses on inclusive social change. So really thinking about how do you have more democratic approaches and inclusive ways to solve social problems. Liz. I'm Liz Warren. I run the Storytelling Institute at South Mountain Community College in Phoenix, Arizona. I've been at South Mountain my whole career, and I've worked with Vitalist the last three years on storytelling in the community. A lot of times when people say, oh, we got to build up resident power to engage, people go, oh, we got to train people in media tactics and all that kind of stuff. You guys chose storytelling. Why? It's really important. A premise of community organizing is really about knowing yourself and how you fit within a larger system, how you connect with others who might be like you. And then also sharing that story to motivate other people to get engaged in that effort. And so storytelling is a really good means to know yourself, connect with others, and also kind of share with the broader society. I had no experience with community organizing before I got involved in this project. But what Stephanie just said about community organizing, it happens to be exactly the same. 
for storytelling. Storytellers have to know themselves. They have to know how to connect with others. And then they have to know how their stories can bridge differences within communities, between communities, whatever it may be. So what we applied in this project and what we know about the power of storytelling in general is, first, people have to talk to each other. And they have to find out what their stories are find out what their relevance is. We have to listen to the lived experience of other people. And when we get those stories in hand, when we know the stories that are going to be useful and powerful, then if people choose to leverage those stories another way through technology and through media, great. But first it has to be connection to self, connection to others. 2017 was the first time you got together. Yep. It's 2020 now. What's been the result of your partnership? The original intention was really to build resident leadership skills to engage civically and be able to be confident in their own experience and then also be able to make clear recommendations to the city and the light around how it would affect their lives. And so storytelling came up at one point, given that the foundation of community organizing really is about knowing yourself and connecting with others. And it came up because Liz actually has a storytelling institute. And that was a resource that was not really known at that time. And it actually exists in South Phoenix. And so it was really great that we came together because a lot of storytelling has been very informal. And so to have such a great resource locally, it was really a great opportunity. And so then Vitalist furthered that investment to be able to contract the Storytelling Institute and Liz for her expertise in this work. Yeah, we started off with with that big community meeting. Remember that one at the college? The leaders of the project that Vitalist was funding in the community were there and they saw that the techniques that we were applying worked. And so the next step was that we worked with a smaller group of community organizers who were directly involved in the Remain, Reclaim and Reimagine project. I think we had about eight or 10 people who came every week for sort of a crash course in storytelling and the stories that came out of that and the strategies that they learned and the way that they began to apply them immediately was very gratifying. And then we really knew it would work. And it was about that time then that Vitalist said, well, why don't we, why don't we make this a little more formal? Why don't you write a workbook? And we wrote the workbook and about three quarters of the way through the workbook, Vitalist said, you know, this is really good. Why don't you write a policy brief? And so we wrote a policy brief, too, and those were published in September of 2019. Today, we're going to give folks a taste of what both of those documents hold. So we have storytelling as a catalyst for systems change. That is our policy brief. And then we have 70 pages of gold is what I call it, but it's actually called Storytelling for Resident Leaders. And so between these two documents, you've captured much of the experience and also the tools that people need to familiarize themselves with. Introduce us first to the policy brief, if you would. Storytelling as a catalyst for systems change. It's essentially a report format that discusses and identifies three core change functions of storytelling and really highlights how it can be used to help people understand themselves and others and then to make different decisions based on this newfound understanding. And so within the report, we've outlined these three core change functions, one of them being self-understanding, that stories support a stronger sense of self. The second being empathy and action, that when you listen to stories, it can be an effective way to promote empathy and greater understanding of others. And then the third piece of that and the way that stories can function and make a difference is they can catalyze systems change because when people's perceptions change, particularly those who have any sort of influence and power, when their perceptions change, their decisions will likely follow and be different as a result. Liz, is it fair to say that 
almost nobody starts by thinking, I should tell a story for greater self-understanding? That's a really good question. I don't think that most people know that that's what's going to be happening. And yet you guys are recommending that people start there. Well, it's because that's what's going to happen anyway. Because the minute you say, I'm going to tell a story about this, and if you're sincere in your desire to connect with others and you're sincere in your desire to speak from your own lived experience, there's just no way you can do it without examining that experience and examining how you want to present that story to others. Would you suggest that in terms of story effectiveness, that's one of the things that people miss out on and their stories are less effective because of that? Yes, I think that's definitely a truism. I will also say that over and over again, in the community context that we've worked in, in the classroom context that I've worked in, it's very difficult to maintain that. But students learn, community members learn right away that if you're going to tell a story, it's going to make demands on you. To do it in a way that's effective and responsible and true, you can't pretend. Which, Stephanie, sort of brings us right away to empathy and action, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That is, when you're telling a story, you're laying something of yourself on the line. Mm -hmm. And you can have certain story topics that can be more powerful or in a way to try to engage others. I mean, that's why you have in certain policy settings, someone will bring someone to tell their story about an issue. Maybe it's a medical experience they've had and it's a healthcare policy that's being discussed. So you'll hear one-on-one because there's something that happens when the human psyche, when you can hear from another human what their experience is and their story is. And so in a sense, then you're creating that greater empathy, of course, if someone's willing to listen to that. Right. So policy, people think, is about populations or about data or about numbers, but it's really people. At the core of it, because ultimately, even there's people in those policy positions that are making those decisions. And that's why it reminds me of an experience. There's a professor at ASU named Dr. Elizabeth Siegel, and she is a social welfare professor and or social work professor. And she had a decade of social policy research. And after that decade came to explore how do you get better social policies in society, her conclusion was greater empathy of those in the policy decision-making position. And so now she studies empathy and social empathy in particular that goes beyond just the one-on-one individual connection, but understanding other people's identities and how that impacts their lives. So we've got these three categories, self-understanding, empathy and action, and stories that catalyze systems change. Can you guys spend a little time taking us through each one of these individually? In terms of stories for self-understanding, we documented in the brief really the impact of telling stories on the teller. And so we have a figure here that we've outlined six aspects and kind of a process in which someone telling their story would go through to see how that really impacts them. And so the first step in that process of how it can change someone individually is a stimulus to tell a story, right? So you may be asked to tell your story or maybe in a community organizing sense, you're asked to tell your story, just some sort of, okay, you're telling your story. And then once you have some sort of prompt to tell your story or motivation, you share the story. And when you share the story, you get support of listeners. And it's really this unintentional consequence that you're not realizing that 
just having support of listeners can bring you then to this next piece, which is new realizations. Because as you're telling it out loud, you may have new insights or even just the reactions of people and the listeners may have something and make you feel differently or think about things in a different way. And those new realizations can lead then to a greater self-awareness and understanding of how you process things or how it has impacted you in your life. And then ultimately, you could have a change in your own self-perception. Yeah, what Stephanie has described is so, so common. In almost every setting that I teach storytelling in, when you first start off, the majority of people will say to you, I don't have any stories, I don't know any stories, and if I do have stories, nobody else would be interested in them. So it's always a revelation for them to discover that if they can get themselves to tell that story, that people are, in fact, interested in what they have to say. Because even if it's a common story, to hear it from an individual person's point of view, from their unique background, is always powerful. And I'll give you an example. I had a student in one of my classes last semester, and he's in his mid-20s, and his Grandmother came here from Mexico in the middle of the last century and established the family, and they've been here for all these many decades. And when he was in high school, his mother died unexpectedly, and this sent him into a cycle of grief and unresolved emotions, and he got in trouble in high school. And right about the time he was graduating from high school, he did achieve that. He and his friends got in some trouble, and he spent a couple nights in jail. And in the second of those nights in jail, he said, this is not me. I'm not going to do this. My mother wouldn't want this. This is not why my grandmother came here to this country. So he got himself back on track. And he was telling a story, as, as is almost always the case at South Mountain Community College, to a very diverse audience, just in our little classroom of 20 people. Some people like him, some people not. And it took a lot of courage for him to tell his story. And he was concerned that some people might condemn him for having gotten in trouble as a young man spending a couple nights in jail. But when he heard the feedback from the people in the room that they didn't judge him, many of them had similar stories to share. Some of them were his mother's or his grandmother's age and told them how they would have felt and how proud they would have been if a son or grandson of theirs had managed to get himself back on track after the kind of trauma that he'd faced. And for him to have his story received in that way changed his self-perception, changed his perception of whether it was safe and appropriate for him to tell his story in the world. And all of his classmates assured him that he should and that other people needed to hear that story. So that resulted in him changing his perspective on himself, on his own experience, and whether it would be safe for him to be who he really was in the world. It seems like there's something humanly reflexive when somebody steps into the middle of the room, so to speak, and braves telling a story that at least a certain portion of the audience wants to reach out and support that person by saying, you know what, I have a similar story or I can relate or what is that? Is that biological? Like, how do we understand that? But it does happen all the time, right? It happens all the time. And I feel like it's very affirming. It reaffirms my faith in the basic goodness of people who, when they see someone who's putting themselves on a line, taking a risk, sharing something painful, that they want to support that person. I think part of it is that they see, and actually this is the empathy and action part, which we'll get to in a minute. They see, oh, I can support this person in this telling of this difficult story. Maybe that means that I will be supported in the telling of my difficult story. And that the generosity that I feel towards this person and that I see other people extending to this person 
that's going to be extended to me too. And that's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. That, in fact, is why storytelling works. Because that impulse that you described, John, that is the kernel, the seed of how communities get built and connections get made between people. And it's not just magic, but it is kind of magic. It's magic. <laughs> For everybody who's following along, Stephanie is taking us through three different figures or models that are inside the storytelling as catalyst for systems change publications. We just covered figure one, and then we have moved all the way into empathy for action. So Stephanie, if you could, page six, figure two, empathy and action. Take us through. So empathy and action, again, going back to how storytelling can affect people, this is the second aspect that we're really highlighting. And it's really what's the impact of hearing stories of lived experience, whatever that experience is. We have outlined five processes in which we see people go through to get to that impact. And the first is you hear a story, right? That's pretty obvious. You have to hear the story to start the process of somehow changing your perspective. The second piece, so once you've heard the story, you're essentially getting new information, right? That's new information to you that you've never heard. And that new information could potentially challenge any perceptions that you have, or it could affirm perceptions that you have. And whether they affirm them or challenge them, you can get a greater sense of yourself and others in that experience because you can either be affirmed and more clear on some of the perceptions you've already had, or you may go into a bit of a cognitive dissonance. This is different than what my experience is. And that can be really powerful. And some people are very open to that. And some people do reject it. And so whenever we as humans are faced with this cognitive dissonance, we can either accept it, reject it, or kind of try to mold it with our existing information to kind of create this new perception. But either way, we hopefully you get a greater understanding of yourself. Once you have that greater understanding, ultimately that can prompt you to interface differently within the world. meeting a couple of months back and it was a group talking about overall well-being of families in Arizona. A woman sort of give her opinion on what's going on and what's wrong with families in Arizona. And she specifically called out folks who are here in Arizona who are undocumented. What she didn't know was somebody in the room was a young undocumented person. And it was such an amazing act of bravery. It was tough to hear the original comments, but it was so gratifying to see somebody listen to another person's story and to be changed by it. And that's what you're talking about here. That's a really good example, but I think it also brings up a concern or consideration when you think about storytelling because sometimes there are these power dynamics that can play and an assumption that the people who should be telling their story are those on the margins all the time because it's the majority that doesn't understand them. And so I don't know if, Liz, you could share a little bit more of kind of the tokenization that you've talked about, which is also listed in the brief, but I feel like that's a really good example of that was really courageous of that particular young woman. But then that's also hard because there's a power dynamic in that room and in that space to consider. Well, I think you've just described the tokenization perfectly. All of us who work in institutions, whether that's a public institution or a private institution, where we're trying to make change in the world, we know the power of those powerful stories. And in fact, we're living in a time where the power of a single story has never been stronger. And so as organizers and people in institutions, 
we know it can be effective. But what we have to make sure is that we don't turn that person and their story into a commodity. There's always the risk of that. And so as community organizers, as people who teach storytelling, I think we have to make sure that the people who are going to be telling the stories, you and your story are going to shape our organization going forward. It's going to become part of the foundation, not like the picture that we hold up Mm -hmm. when we need it. Because that then prevents the hierarchical charity model that can be like, poor you, we're going to help you, but we need you to tell your story and we'll use you as needed versus you're the reason why this work even exists because there's this issue and you have a strength and resilience in your experience. And so you really should be valued and engaged for that. Well, and then comes the other downside, which did happen later on in that day, which was anytime something near this topic came up, what happened? Everybody Everybody looks to this one person to represent an entire expanse of people because suddenly this was the sole representative of that experience. Mm -hmm. How do you combat that? I think that's beyond the power of storytelling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fair enough. (laughs) Who's in the room and how did you get to that room? Could it have been more diverse? What are the power dynamics? That's the systems piece. And that's maybe could transition us to. Let's move to the systems piece. (laughs) That's exactly what I was saying, because I think that that tokenization or asking that one person to be the voice of an entire population is part of the systemic problem because the power people in the room are still not taking responsibility for learning more. So there's really, I mean, and I know we're about to get to probably the broadest piece of this, but there's a tremendous responsibility that's placed upon anybody who wants to create this space to really be sensitive, to really understand power dynamics, to really understand by talking with the people that you're hoping to work with, right? Not by studying it or looking it up in a book, but like really engaging with people in a really meaningful and vulnerable and open way so that you're a learner as much as you're anything else. It's important for people to remember this takes time. So it takes time for a person to get ready to tell their story and to share their story and to take on whatever the consequences of that may be for themselves or their communities of telling their story. One of the things when you look at the figure on page nine of the policy brief is the systems change through stories model starts absolutely at ground zero. It starts absolutely with the stories the most impacted. Stephanie, can you take us through the model? Going back to stories are not the solution to everything. Nothing's the solution to everything. And so really here, we wanted to frame storytelling as a catalyst for systems change because it's possible that there can be a shift in perspective and thus a shift in people's decisions. And so the process that we've kind of outlined is the first piece is listening to stories of those most impacted. We live in a society that does not work for everyone. We have multiple systems that do not work for everyone. This idea of, especially in the social sector, all of us are working towards changing these systems or changing society for the better and helping people. In order to be most effective with storytelling as that tool and that perception, you have to start with those most impacted by the system because Even if you've studied it or been an institutional leader on a particular issue, there's an expertise of someone living that experience, whatever that social issue is related to healthcare, related to policing, related to criminalization, related to the incarceration system. I mean, whatever social issue there is, those are people who are experiencing the system and are going to have insights into what the true issues are of the system and how they can change. One thing that people tend to think they can do is get that information by proxy. Like, 
oh, we want to tell the stories of the most impacted, but we just need to talk to the person who runs the service agency who works with them. Or a really powerful image that I got from Sonoran Prevention Works is there's never an actual current user in the room. There might be former users, but there's never a current one. And so how can you really get the story if you're not talking to the people who are most impacted, who are going through the experience right now? Because a current user today is different than a user two years ago, for example. I think that happens where we go to the perceived leader or expert because there's this societal perception that those experiencing the issue have something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. It, we individualize it and say their experiences are something that they did. And so we don't look to them as leaders or experts. We look to them as something that they don't have that strength and they need other people to support that. I mean, that goes back to the charity model versus an empowerment lens or strengths-based approach to community change. And so when you have that kind of top-down charity model, you're not even seeing that person as an expert. So you have to change your perception of who's an expert first to see the importance and the value of connecting with those most impacted. That's why it's so awesome that this model starts with air. (laughs) Take us through the rest. After there's been stories shared and there's a hearing of stories from those most impacted, ideally there's a change in perception then you can change in how you work. And so we're assuming this process is dependent on the idea that there's a leader in a decision-making role within a system that can influence how things function. And so we're really thinking there's some sort of, you know, whether it's policymaker, decision-maker, those pieces, it's assuming that those people are the ones listening to the stories of most impacted, that they get a change in perception, that they ultimately change how they work, And then ideally, there's this continuous connection and improvement in their work. And again, it's not this one and done. I heard a story, everything's changed because there's so many nuances. It really is this continuous and it should be relationship-based work to really continue to make decisions that are more informed and connected to those most impacted. the most important thing that Stephanie was just talking about was this idea that somehow the people with the direct experience are not the experts of that experience. And we'll hire a consultant and we'll read a report or we'll commission a report, anything to give us some distance Mm. between the reality of whatever that lived experience is. Whereas we could use those same resources, probably in time and dollars, and set up some sort of consistent system of getting those stories from the people who are actually impacted by these policies and taking those barriers away. Leaders at all levels would benefit from that, as would the community. Okay, pop culture. The fetishization of story in a political setting. How often do we see that? And we see a politician call to a member of the audience and tell that person's story as a catalyst for a policy recommendation that that individual is trying to push through. And how do you feel about that in the context of what we just talked about? I personally feel fine about it. And here's why. First of all, politics at that level are fairly transparent. And I don't think anybody is unaware of what is happening in that moment. And I think it's probably always better to link it to a real person, a problem to a real person. Yes, I think that's fine. 
I think it provides a model for people about how to engage. Now, the thing that I would want to know then in those contexts, all right, did you make that policy? Was that person that you brought all the way to Washington for the State of the Union, were they helped? Was the community that they represent helped? That's what I want to know after that. And both before, during, and after that story, did that person feel safe? Did that person feel tokenized? Did that person feel like it was a power grab or an abuse of power? I see those stories and I go, ooh. I understand what you're saying. And I think in the balance, it's probably better than not having the story. But yes, it gets right back to what we were talking about before. The person who is willing to put their own life on the line to share a story like that, they know there are consequences coming. They have to know it's a risk. And in the case of those huge stories that get that kind of profile, they generally are well aware when they step into it, I think. Stephanie, given what we all just went through with these three models, I know I just went all the way up to D.C. Now we're going to come back down to like the city of Phoenix to a village planning council or a city council meeting. What would it look like in those settings to tell stories and how would you do it in a way that kept things safe and avoided some of the really dangerous pitfalls of re-traumatizing somebody or tokenizing somebody's story? I think it really goes back to who is leading those stories and who is leading the people who are going to try to influence policymakers. And I think that that's actually a transition to the workbook itself because the workbook is really centered on supporting resident leadership. There's a bit of a power dynamic which we talked about in the brief in that the catalyzing systems change from the way the system already is set up of those in power. That's what stories can do and hopefully influence decision makers. But really another way to shift power is to give more power to people who don't necessarily have the political power, institutional power, those on the margins that they then build their own power and transition to these positions in their own leadership role. And so the workbook really is on the assumption that when those connected to an issue and those most impacted, if they have that expertise, then it's really about building their power and confidence in their experience, thus having a workbook that focuses on resident leadership to help them tell their story and help them support the power building. And thusly, the two of you put heart and soul into producing a 70-page workbook that is fantastic. And I should say, not at all intimidating for its 70 pages because right on the very first spread of the workbook that tells us exactly how to access everything that's in here. And by the way, when I say everything that's in here, everything from ancient story techniques to the latest and greatest, right? I love the way you said that, John. Absolutely. <laughs> all the way from what our ancestors did to what we can do. Joseph Campbell, do right it's now. all there. Yep, it's all right there. When Stephanie and I started talking about the idea of an infographic, that really helped me shift how to think about how to put this workbook together. When I was able to lay this out, then it got written in about six weeks, but literally it took me about four months to figure this out. So I'm so glad that you find this useful because it was really a breakthrough for me. I think it's tremendous. And so just to give folks a word picture, if you will, what we're looking at is basically a flow chart that starts off with the basic questions of what is a story? How do resident leaders use story? Creating a safe storytelling spaces time. It's a process. And there's a page number under each one. And from each of those foundational thoughts about how to create a story, you've got the categories of finding, crafting, and telling stories, utilizing stories and story circles, storytelling resources for resident leaders, and then beneath that, all the tools that go with each of those different areas. It's really fantastic. If either one of you were to pick out a place where people should go to start their journey in storytelling, Would it be directly through this flowchart step-by-step, or would you say, hey, you know what? A great place to learn about stories that you may never have thought about is on page X. The way that Liz has thought about it 
the key components of storytelling in general is first finding a story, then crafting it, and then finally telling it. You'll see that all of the activities are organized in those three overarching skills, the finding, crafting, and telling of the story. It's important to note that Liz had such great experience and expertise, and she's tested and explored lots of these different activities. The ones that are centered here really are based on the work with the resident leaders, Remain, Reclaim, Reimagine, resident leadership Mm -hmm. group that was in South Phoenix that Vilist invested in to support their capacity. So it really was a great opportunity to explore what's effective for resident leaders outside of an academic setting. And one of the things that in any kind of training like this for resident leaders or anybody else who's trying to learn storytelling, the thing that most often surprises people is that a story has a definite shape. We grow up with the idea of we're telling stories and we may be sharing memories or talking about a time when, but a story actually has a specific narrative shape. And once you know what that specific shape is, it's very empowering. You can see, oh, I need these five steps to tell a story. I need to tell about the people, the place, the problem, the progress, and the point. That's it? Yes, that's it. Tell me that. Then you've told a whole story. Well, then it takes a burden off your shoulders because then it becomes manageable. By the way, Liz, I've seen you walk into a room where everybody says, I don't have a story. And then you launch them into a prompt. And then you can't get them to stop talking. And then you break out that structure that you just said. And people realize, wow. I did four out of five, or I did all five, or wow. Some of it's natural, but by making it intentional, you make your stories more powerful. Absolutely. And I have to give credit to Donald Davis for that structure that I just rattled off. He calls it the five Ps, and he's one of our mentors at the Storytelling Institute and taught us that structure, so I need to give a shout out to him. But yes, then it becomes manageable, because if you say to yourself, all right, I need these five elements, or there are also models with three elements or 17 elements or whatever it is if you're going to do the hero's journey. But whatever structure you choose, then you say, oh, okay, I have three minutes to tell this story and I have to tell five basic things. I can do that. I can practice it a couple times and I can go in there. I don't have to worry about rambling. I know I've got my point already because I've told it a few times and got feedback from my friends. Like any other tool, once you know how to do something, it makes it easier to do. There's some specific activities that we can highlight related to first finding a story, then crafting it, and then telling it. And so the first one... For people who are new to the workbook or scanning it as we're talking here on the podcast, John's already taken you to page three where you can see the overall structure. I want to draw your attention to page 25. Often in the community, when we're trying to help people find stories or whether we're trying to develop stories for a particular initiative or a particular political moment or whatever it is we're trying to do, people will come, they're willing to help. And like many people, they say, I don't have a story. So as the organizer, it's our job to say, well, I think we can help you find that story. And this workshop, this particular exercise on page 25 guides you through that. How do you set it up? How do you select a series of prompts for this community, for this particular issue that's going to help people get the stories that they need? 
It takes you through how to get people talking about those ideas and then structuring those ideas and retelling them in a story format, getting some positive feedback, and in a very short period of time, have people walking away with a concise story that represents their lived experience related to an issue or an idea that they want to share about. This is turnkey. On the page, you have your prompts, and on the side, it says, here's the materials you need, here's the time that you need, here's how you structure it, and then here's the outline of how you take your audience through it. So, Liz, tell us a little bit more about this particular section. Also, it would be great to talk about story circles. Story circles are an excellent way to get story ideas. That's one of their functions. Story circles also have another function, which is bringing people together, possibly from different parts of a community, different sides of the same issue, so that they can learn each other's perspectives. We had some excellent experiences when working with Remain, Reclaim, and Reimagine in bringing community members together with city officials from a range of departments. And for the people working in the governmental positions to hear the residents, for the residents to hear the people in those jobs was revelatory experience for all concerned. Because I think they came into the room assuming that they were very different from one another. But they found out that they were not. The members of the community found out that the people of color who were working in government agencies often faced the same kind of racism and discrimination that they faced in the community. They, they didn't know that. Liz, the story circle is actually a big part of your course curriculum. It is. And it's such a powerful tool because on the one hand, it's as simple as it sounds. You bring people together in a circle. You set a few ground rules for how they're going to interact with one another. You design some prompts to help get the conversation going, and then you let it happen. You witness the glory of it. It does seem magical sometimes. When somebody comes into a situation like this and is willing to tell a story with a generosity about their own experience, that is inspiring to other people, and it's empowering to other people. So it just takes that one person to start it off saying something that maybe is risky for them to say or that they're unsure if they should say. That will always break the dam and other people will say, oh, okay, I've had that experience. I know what you're talking about. I didn't know you had that too. Once you've found stories through either one of these tools, it's time to actually craft them a little bit more. Talk about the elements of the workbook that address crafting stories. The crafting stories, it's several paces through the workbook, actually. There's sort of a summary on page 29 as part of the I need an idea for a story exercise. But you can find a more detailed story structures chart on page 16. The main thing to know about structuring a story is that a real story documents change. Something has got to be different. The story starts out in one situation and it ends in another situation. That transition has to mean something to somebody. That's basically what you're trying to do in a story. And the five P's model that I told you about earlier, where we're telling the people in the place, who's there, where did it happen, what's the problem? How did that problem get solved? What's the progress? And what's the point? Why does it matter? Similarly, you might use the structure that we call how something came to be. Just three steps. Well, how did it used to be? What changed? How is it now? And why does that matter? That's actually my favorite. That feels so organic. I feel like we're engaged in that process every single day of our lives. Because yesterday wasn't quite like what today was. And maybe something changed. And I can probably tell you what that's about. And certainly over the course of our lives, we see that pattern again and again and again. We found our stories. We've crafted our stories. 
talk about some of the best vehicles for sharing stories. Brings us right back to circles, right? That's a really good question. When we're doing this kind of work to help people find, craft, and tell stories, we want to get them telling those stories right away. So we're always going to build time into that workshop for them to tell it to at least one other person and maybe stand up in front of the whole group. That's always very powerful. It's safe. It feels comfortable to look one person in the eye as you tell this new baby story that you've made. But oftentimes people are willing to take that risk and stand up in front of a group of 20 or 50 or sometimes 100 people in the bigger workshops and tell their story. When they're able to do that, they're ready to go. But then once they have their stories, well, what are they going to do with them? Well, community organizers use them in all sorts of different ways. One of the most basic levels, they gather them to show the work that they're doing or to illustrate that the problems or the issues that their organization is designed to address. Just basic. Beyond that, maybe they will work with that person to share their story in a more formal setting, in a governmental agency, in a city council meeting, at the legislature. Maybe those stories will be gathered and condensed, written down to be shared in grant applications. This is the story of a person in our community. Their story exemplifies the issue that we are hoping to address through this grant application. Beyond that, people then often take those stories, they use it in social media. One of our residents had this experience, Facebook, picture, Twitter, whatever. So the same story, if the person is willing for the story to be used in that way, and that's a very important thing to consider, the same story can be used in so many different ways. And that gets back to your point earlier, John, about the power of technology. Once the person has made that connection with themselves and their story, been able to share it with another person, feel like they've crafted something that has meaning and power, and given that they're willing to have their story used, well, then it can be used in almost an unimaginable variety of ways. Nice. There it is, the power of story. Now, before we allow people to say that they can't wait to make stories, let's talk about some of the important considerations that people need to have, some of which you just ran down. But just to make sure we put a fine point on it, what are the important things to always keep in mind when you're engaging folks and asking them to share their stories. How do you create a positive experience for everyone and one that builds power and engagement and a more equitable community? On page nine, we've really outlined how to create safe storytelling spaces and best practices to keep everyone safe and comfortable and avoid some of the tokenization and commodifying that we talked about earlier. We've outlined four core components to creating a safe space. One is setting ground rules for the group. The second is to utilize affirmation-based feedback for the listeners. The third is understanding the group dynamics that might be present within that story circle, and then adjusting for disruptive or offensive behavior. Starting off with the ground rules is key to the success of the whole process. And the ground rules need to be agreed upon by all the participants. And they can include things like the participants will choose themselves what stories from their life they want to craft and tell and that no one is pressured to tell a specific story within or outside of the training. That helps to avoid the commodification problem. Stories should never be shared outside of a training setting without specific permission of the teller, either by other members of the group or by the organizers. And the feedback from the participants must always be focused on affirmation and not on critique. In our society, we love a good critique. We love to sit down and tell somebody how they could have done that so much better <laughs> if only they did this or that. But that's not for us to say about another person's story. If a person wants a particular kind of feedback, they'll ask for that and we'll create a space for that to be asked for. 
We're not going to tell other people what's right or wrong about their story. Because essentially it's their life. That's right. And it's really personal to then try to critique someone's life, especially in such a vulnerable moment. There are storytelling techniques that a person might utilize to take that story and adapt it for a certain situation or to make it more impactful in a certain situation. And you can ask your participants if they want that kind of feedback. And if they do, great, you can provide it. If they don't, then fine, you don't provide it, right? Because it's, it's really a sovereignty issue. In the same way that we have sovereignty over our land and over our bodies, we have sovereignty over our stories. And no one has the right to tell us what to do with that story. Great point. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm going to ask you basically three true or false questions. We're ready. Number one, true or false. Stories are always good for everyone, especially when the organizers mean well. False. The first part is true. The second part is false. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Question number two, true or false. Stories are attractive of meaning to be used for other purposes. Stories can be extractive. I feel like there's a positive and negative connotations with like extractive. I feel like generally it's very negative. And so it feels like mining, it feels like strip mining, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Just strip mining for stories. They Something you got to be careful of, right? Yeah, it's extractive. True. Then yeah. it's really, it goes back to who's in the position to get the story and who's trying to get it from who, because that goes back to the power dynamics of that. And so I think it can be very extractive if you have someone in power trying to get something with someone who doesn't have the same equal power or autonomy over their story or whether to tell it. Perfect. Which brings me to question number three. True or false? Stories are powerful. And for that reason, they must be respected. True. True. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Liz. Your voices of experience and wisdom are greatly appreciated. We cannot even begin to thank you enough for your extensive, heartfelt community work and for lending some of those results from that work to these publications. Indeed, stories must be respected. When people's stories aren't heard and when people's hurt and pain isn't seen and understood, anger, suffering, and struggle to be heard ensues. There is so much wrapped up in this moment, hundreds of years of brutal human history, in fact, But that doesn't mean we can't pause even now and practice the fundamental step of listening to and authentically hearing each other's stories. And with the publications linked in the show notes of this episode, you'll find ways to practice the art of storytelling for yourself. Next week, our roundtable returns with plenty to discuss about trends, the latest science, and how we are adapting as a state. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. You, our dear listeners, are speaking with your ears again. If you missed it the first time around, our affordable housing episode from a few weeks back is a big hit. And there is so much more to explore related to community health and well-being in our other episodes, too, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. And don't forget, the Vitalist Spark is now available on Spotify, and you could subscribe there to be notified of new episodes too. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.